Nothing quite like being touched by the hand of the Lord. If you've really been touched by the hand of the Lord, you will never be the same, like this song said. The change that that will begin to cause to come about in your life is something that will be different than anything you've ever experienced. I was thinking as I looked up at the words of this last song how we started with a song about change and we ended this session of our service at least, this portion of our service with a song talking about change. We're glad he's changed us, aren't we? And Brother John was talking about, Brother Fowler here, when he opened us up with prayer, he was talking about the fact that God has changed us and he's changing us. It's very important to I don't mean you have to make a deep grammatical study of the Greek or the Hebrew, but you'll see it if you do. You'll see this if you do. Very important to understand that the change that God does in our life is a progressive change. There's some things He changes all in one just fell swoop. In one action, He changes a massive number of things. With one single action, He changed your entire past if you've been washed in the blood. If you've been washed in the blood, it was just one single act that accomplished that. If you accepted that, if you came in under the blood, if you allowed that blood to be applied to your life, it was just one action. That's what this middle song was talking about. No more the blood of bulls and goats. Imagine that was on your minds because we were talking about that last Sunday. There's no more need for that now because the blood of Christ eclipses all the blood that was shed. If you're going back all the way to the patriarchs for that about 4,000 years of blood being shed before Jesus came. Here's another one of those fours, John. He was talking about the four days that Jesus tarried before he came to free Lazarus from the grave. If you want to get really deep and really symbolic, and I'm not going to do it too much here today, just get you thinking. You know sometimes a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And do you realize from the time of man dying sin to the time that the Holy Spirit was poured out to give us life again, Jesus came, was 4,000 years, just like the four days he tarried to raise Lazarus. There was a 4,000 year period between man dying in his sin in terms of Adam and Eve and the choices they made. And then on into the 4,000 years that passed after that time through the patriarchs, through the giving of the law, through the order and operation of Israel under the law, all the way down to the time of Jesus coming. Just like that Passover lamb. Now that is certainly a picture of this. You know that Passover lamb in the 12th chapter of Exodus was set aside for a very specific period of days before it was sacrificed? It was selected on the 10th day of that month and it was killed and its blood was applied on the 14th day of that month. How many days is that? Four days. Just like Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Talks about in Revelation. John called him the Lamb of God twice in that first chapter of John. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, it says he's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Well, he was chosen for that purpose from the foundation of the world. He wasn't killed at the foundation of the world. You have to understand how that's being used poetically. He was set aside for that purpose at the foundation of the world. And 4,000 years, just like four days, he set aside for that purpose, and then he was sent to this earth to fulfill that purpose. So that's one of the greatest changes that could ever occur in your entire life is when you've encountered the Lamb of God and you've had the blood of the Lamb applied to your life. We shouldn't, once that occurs, no longer feel a need to sing this first song. You know, this first song was, both of the first couple of songs were really an appeal to God. This first song was an appeal, change me, O God. From the creature that I am. You think we need to just stop making that appeal once we are washed in the blood, once we come to the Lord? Or do we hope He will still keep changing us? 
He changed me from the creature that I was in terms of what I was in debt to sin for, but I want Him to keep changing me. I'm not yet what I want to be. I want Him to keep making the changes in my life because I'm not yet the creature I want to be. I'm striving to be though. So that first song, change me, O Lord, from the creature that I am. One of the ways that he does that is in the next part of the verse. Renew my mind by the washing of your word. You know that the word of God can do something to change you? Now it's because it's the spirit working through the word, but the word of God can do something to change you. It won't do anything to change you if you don't respond to it. It'll wash your mind, but you've got to be responsive to the washing. You've got to want to be changed. And that's what's so precious about that first song and why I hope we never lose that spirit, that zeal. Lord, change me. Don't leave me as I am. Yes, I'm in a far better state than ever was in all of my existence when my past sins were washed away. But I've still got the potential in me to go back and do something I shouldn't do. I've still got wrong thoughts. I've still got wrong feelings. I still might make mistakes or maybe even, God forbid, do presumptuous sins. But Lord, you can change me. If you can change my past, you can change my present. And if you can change my present, you can change my future. And there is eternal life and immortality, right in a nutshell. God changes your past, your present, and your future. And you enter into immortality and eternal life. Change from the creature that you were into something entirely different. So renew our minds, Lord, by the washing of your word. And through that process and the work of the Holy Spirit, He'll restore our soul to Him. Our soul at the soul level will be His, not just externally. Like, I'm yours, Lord, but I'm still not always obedient. I'm yours, Lord, but I'm still wrestling with something inside that I want to have changed. I want my soul changed. Where the way I think, the way I feel, the nature within me has been changed. Isn't that what we're really striving for and what we're longing for? It's what is in that eighth chapter of the book of Romans where he talks about how the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now. There's a longing in our hearts to be changed. There's a longing in our hearts to be more like Jesus. There's a longing in our hearts to break through the veil of the curse that's been cast over this earth. And there's a hope that's in our hearts because of that, isn't there? So change me, O Lord, from the creature that I am. Renew my mind by the washing of your word. See if I can remember all the words of this song. Restore my soul to thee. Don't leave me as I am. God in heaven forbid, don't leave me as I am, Lord. Don't just change my past and leave me in my present state. Don't just forgive me of what I have done and then allow me to remain in a state where I'll just keep doing things that are displeasing to you, but change me from the creature that I am right now into somebody that looks more like you. Lord, I want to change. Don't you want to change? You know, if you were to go back, and this is one of the things that causes a lot of confusion in people's minds regarding some theological issues in the book of Romans, what most people don't seem to understand about the book of Romans, and they're not getting the point that's underneath some of the deeper statements in Romans, some of the more mysterious statements, some of the statements that Paul makes that sound like, if you're not biblically studied enough, they sound like they are contradicting things that are said elsewhere in the Bible, like things James said, or even that were said even Paul's other letters. It's because people don't understand what Paul is really addressing in the book of Romans. You know, most books of the Bible have a subject. Some of them have multiple subjects, because when you write an epistle to a church, like Paul wrote to Corinth, he wrote two epistles that are in the Scripture. 
You write an epistle to a church, you probably aren't just dealing with one problem, you're dealing with a number of things, and you probably aren't just trying to encourage them in one area, you're trying to encourage them in a number of areas. The epistle to Corinth, Paul addresses a whole lot of things. There's a lot of subjects there. But usually, every book of the Bible has a general theme. You almost could come up with a word or a few words that would kind of give you a general idea of what the underlying message of that book is. The book of Romans, whether people realize it or not, the underlying message I think many people think is the message is the word faith. And that is certainly absolutely critical and a key component of the book. But the message of the book of Romans is change. Faith is what will give you the motivation to change. Faith is what will empower you to change. The right kind of faith is what will compel you to change. Because if you really believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek after Him, you'll diligently seek after Him. See how common sense that is? Now you talk about another book, Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that the bulk of the message of Hebrews is about the doctrine of perfection. But there are parts of the book of Hebrews that have very specific subjects that are almost an entire chapter that is entirely that subject, like the 11th chapter of Hebrews that is what we call sometimes the faith chapter. The context, the subject of that chapter is faith throughout, from the beginning to the end. And in the statements of that 11th chapter of Hebrews, what I was just quoting a moment ago, when it says, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For you have to believe that He is. You've got to really believe that God is, but that's not all that you have to believe. You've got to believe that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. There's a whole lot of theology built up in the last half of that statement. A lot of times people stop with, you have to believe that He is. The devils believe that He is. Believing that He is isn't the whole package of what faith constitutes. It's believing that He is, and it's believing that He has a purpose for your life. Do you know when it says He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him? That means He's got a purpose for your life. He has something He wants to do in you and for you. When we look at the word rewarder, we think that means He's going to give me a gift, or He's going to give me something nice, and it's true. Hasn't He given you some gifts? He gave you His Son, didn't He? Is there a greater gift than Jesus? There's other gifts that are pretty incredible. After He gave you His Son, you think that'd be gift enough. He's given me everything I ever need and everything I'll ever want. And you know He just didn't stop with that? Do you realize that the gift that He gave, according to Ephesians 4, the person that is that gift, Jesus, ascended on high and led captivity captive and gave... What did he give? Gifts, plural, to men. Meaning the gift that God gave became a gift giver and he gave gifts too. Isn't that something? So Jesus started giving some gifts right away. You know what the very first gift he gave was? In the first chapter of Acts, he told his disciples before he ascended back to the Father, he said to them, tarry here at Jerusalem until the promise of the Father come. There's something that God wants to give you. Honestly, if, if you had understood what God had just given you in His Son, and you had recognized how incredible it is, the gift of Jesus, you'd think, what else does God need to be giving me? That ought to be your spirit, shouldn't it? Shouldn't your spirit be, what else do I deserve? You didn't deserve Jesus to begin with, so you better get that right. God gave me far more than I could ever deserve when He gave me His Son, and yet He's got more He wants to give. You know why he has more he wants to give? Because Jesus' purpose in coming the first time did not complete everything he was to do. He still had things to do in his church and through his church. And in order to do that, there needed to be gifts given to get that job done. 
The very first of those gifts was given in the very next chapter of Acts. He said, tarry here in the first chapter at Jerusalem until the promise of the Father come. And that was about 40 days. He appeared to them. If you read between the lines, you'll see this. He said he appeared to them about 40 days after his resurrection, and there were 50 days between the Feast of first fruits and the Feast of Pentecost. So that means there was about 10 days left. So they must have tarried at Jerusalem about 10 days, which is interesting because 10 is a judgment number in the Bible. They had to go through a process themselves. You realize they were being changed? by their interactions with Jesus, but they had to even make some changes, it looks like, in those last few days so that by the time the day of Pentecost was fully come, they would be in one place, in one accord. Not in a variety of places, in several accords. (laughs) I feel this way and you feel that way. In one place and in one accord. And in that one place and one accord, they were ready then for another gift that was going to be given, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praise His holy name. And then through that gift, this is just how God is. God's work is self-replicating. It should be. Whenever He gives something, it's intended to create more. It's kind of like a seed being put in the ground. You know, you can put one seed in the ground. Let's say all you had was one single seed that was a type of a seed that would produce a certain type of plant. You put that seed into the ground, and in that plant comes the life. In that plant is more seed. And then you could take that seed and plant more plants, and in each of those plants is more seed. You see how God built right into the creation for everything to be replicating so that whatever He invests, it increases? Whatever God invests is intended to increase. So He gave us His Son. Now, how Jesus is intended to increase, you could list a whole long list of things. He's intended to increase in terms of His influence, in terms of His reach, in terms of people that have come to know Him, come into relationship with Him. But he's intended to increase individually in our lives. We're not to stay as we were when we first met him. We're to be in Christ. We're to put on Christ. He's to become our model for how we live our life, how we walk, how we talk, how we act. Jesus is the role model for that. That's why he referred to as the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ in Ephesians 4. He's that measure. He's the one by which we measure everything. So when we're being changed, we're being changed to the degree that we're reaching that measure. So thank you, Lord, for these gifts you've given. Each one of the gifts that God has given, each thing He's sowed into our life is something intended to produce something in us, something intended to change us. If you were to read through, I I had Romans 8 on my mind, but just to show you what I mean about Romans, if you were to read through the middle part of the book of Romans, which is the centerpiece of what's going on in that book, you could read the 6th, the 7th, and the 8th chapter. The 9th, the 10th, and 11th chapter addressing Israel, there's a little bit different subject, though it overlaps. But the 6th, the 7th, and the 8th chapter are the real heart of this letter. You realize those chapters, the whole message of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is change, change, change. In my Bible, as most of you local folks know, when I see a scripture that has some responsibility and process of salvation, the works of salvation that go on in us, Whenever I see a passage like that where our responsibilities are there or you see that God is doing something that we're involved in working along with Him, I always underline those things in orange in my Bible. I just ran out of colors, you know. I'd already underlined every other color. So if you were to look at my Bible, you would see all through the 6th, 7th, and 8th chapter of Romans, verses that are underlined in orange because they're talking about the process of what God is doing in us as we work out our own salvation and He is working in us to willing to do of His good pleasure, as Paul said to the church at Philippi. The process is going on that is changing us. 
We're changed by the blood. We're changed by the work of the Spirit. We're changed by the washing of the Word. The renewing of our minds that is accomplished through that. It's not just renewing your mind back to some place it was earlier in your life because that's not such a pleasant thing. I wouldn't want my mind to be renewed back to the time when I was in my teens for a whole lot of reasons. I give you some reasons that are probably obvious, but some that may not be obvious. I wouldn't want my mind renewed back to that place because I didn't have the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom in some areas I have now. I don't want to go back to that place and make the mistakes I made all over again. That's one of the blessings of age and experience. Nobody wants to get older and nobody wants to go through bad experiences, but let me tell you, it's a wonderful blessing of age and experience. We don't like getting older. Well, maybe you do up until a certain point in your life. I've told you through the years, I was pretty excited about getting older until I hit 22. Now, I didn't care about 21. That had no bearing to me in terms of this world and the things you can do at 21. But, you know, you think 18, you're kind of a man. You're kind of a man at 18. If anyone in here is 18, forgive me. But you're kind of a man at 18. I mean, you're a man legally. You may not be a man in maturity. At 21, you know, you might be a little more of a man, more of what people would think of as a man. But 22 is not going in the right direction anymore, you know. You're not going toward a nice goal. You've just passed it. Now you're headed towards the aging process that isn't just a nice peak. 21 sounds like a nice peak, but 22, you know, 30, 40. I just struck the bell of 50 here just a couple months ago, and that was a shock to think 50. What in the world happened to the last 30, 40, 50 years? That's the nature of how things work is there is a progressive move forward in terms of our age right now, at least under the curse. We're aging and going through the aging process. There's a benefit to the aging process, though. Because you will learn some things through the process of aging if you're willing to learn them. It's like this song, Lord, I want to be changed. You've got to be willing to be changed. You've got to be willing to learn the lessons. Some people go through processes in their life that they aren't happy about the process and they will not learn from the process. And so what ends up happening when you don't learn from a process is God gives you another one. And I'm going to tell you what, if you're going to be so stubborn and hard-headed that he gives you several in a row and you still don't learn from it, you still have a bad spirit when he's done with them, they're going to get worse. The processes will get worse until you finally learn the lesson. Not because he doesn't love you, not because he's abusive, he's not. It's because he loves you so much he doesn't want to see you in that state. He doesn't want to see you in that state of mind. He doesn't want to see you in that spirit. So he'll take you through things that if you take them right and respond to them right, they will change you. If you don't, you're going to go through them again, if not worse. So Lord, I want to be changed. And I don't want you to have to take me through six things to change me on something I could learn from the first. Lord, let me have the kind of spirit that whatever you're taking me through, I learn all the lessons. I milk everything out of it. I squeeze all the juice out of the olives of whatever that experience is so that when the experience is over, I've learned everything you can learn from that experience, good or bad. You'll learn more from bad experiences. We can learn some things from good experiences that are pretty encouraging. You can learn some things about God. If God shows up when He's unexpected, or God shows up in dealing with a condition that you don't have an answer for, that only God can deal with, and He deals with it, that'll teach you something about God. It should increase your faith in God. And don't let me forget, I want to come back to Hebrews 11. It should increase your faith in God. But I'm going to tell you what has done more for developing the right spirit in me has been the difficult things I've gone through. That I was wise enough, perhaps, or just he took me through the right kind of process, maybe I wasn't wise at all, that I learned the lesson. I want to learn everything I can about God, but I want to have everything changed in me that is unlike him too. 
So when you read through a book like the book of Romans, one of the things you need to remember when you read through that book is the central subject of that book is change. It's even the subject of the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapters. They're talking about Israel because Paul is in this state of sorrow over the condition of Israel, and he's talking about how they're in this state where they're not going to turn to God. They're blind. It says blindness in part in that 11th chapter of Romans. Blindness in parts happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. They're in a state of darkness right now. They will not accept Jesus. But do you know what the powerful undergirding theme of even Romans 9, 10, 11, as dark as they are, is? He's reaching a climax in that 11th chapter where he says, but there's going to come a time when God is going to open their eyes. There's going to come a time when they're going to be restored back to Him. What will that be? Change. They're going to be changed from the state they're in that doesn't look like anyone could change them. And nobody by force of message or might is going to change them. It's going to have to take the God of heaven to change them. He's going to have to roll the scales off of their eyes like he did Paul so that Israel will see what they have been missing all of this time. And then those that really love God. That's what I'm hoping is always present in the heart of our assembly. Because if you really love God, you're going to want to be changed. Those that really love God, when they recognize they're not what they ought to be, and they recognize that they're not in relationship with Him like they thought they were, they'll want to be changed. In order to be changed, they're going to have to change their attitude towards Jesus, and their relationship with God will be changed by the change of relationship they have with Jesus. So even that is a message of change in the book of Romans. But if you were to start off in that sixth chapter of the book of Romans, and I flip through those pages and see all that orange... Every bit of it is talking about change. It's talking about not being static in our relationship with the Lord. Salvation is not static. Static, S-T-A-T-I-C. Anything that's static for too long will become stagnant. Salvation is not static. It isn't something that happens and it freezes in time. Like you just got saved and now you've been put in the refrigerator to await the resurrection, you know, living or dead, you're in the fridge, so to speak. We don't believe in a refrigerated religion. This is a real, living, operating activity going on. And it's been going on ever since you came to the Lord. Sometimes in spite of yourself, it's been going on. God's been working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Sometimes in spite of us, sometimes along with us. And it's a precious thing if it can be along with us because then we can be changed because we want to be changed. It isn't just that God is forcing us through a process that we don't want at all, but we have a desire for it. So from the very beginning of that chapter, I wouldn't possibly read through those three chapters here because it would take too long. In each of those verses, you can just break down in detail. But there's a lot of pretty powerful things in those statements. Just the beginning of that sixth chapter. What shall we say then? This is an interesting way to start a chapter. Let you know Paul is getting ready to give you some information that you better deeply consider because what he's saying is, is this really what you want to claim? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that what you want to claim is the message of the gospel? That it's a message that allows you to continue in sin that grace may abound? Thank God grace is abounding. Aren't you glad God's grace is still working? He hasn't pulled back His grace and said, you know what, I've done enough for you. I've given you enough and you haven't appreciated it. There's times God gives us things that we don't show the right appreciation for. That's why in one of these songs it is talking about us being thankful. And I just had to keep telling the Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, if we show appreciation for the things God's done for us, he'll do more. We need to have a spirit of appreciation. It's not a spirit of appreciation to say, thank you for what you did for me. Now I am going to live like it didn't matter what you did for me. I'm going to continue in sin. That's not showing gratitude for what was done for you. 
The only proper expression of gratitude you're going to find out in the next verses is to not continue to sin. Say, I'm so grateful for what you did for me, for the price that it cost. How could I respond in any way except to try to live for you? So should we continue in sin that grace may abound? If you didn't know the answer to that, thank God when Paul gives answers to his own questions because, you know, people get so caught up in their theological ideas, somebody would have put an answer in here. If Paul didn't, it probably would have been the wrong answer. But Paul says, God forbid. In other words, of course not. Of course we don't continue to sin that grace may abound. How shall we that are dead to sin, we should be dead to sin, continue to live any longer therein? That's a change, isn't it? When God brings something into your life that starts to cause you to feel dead to sin, listen, as long as your conscience is alive, you're going to feel dead to sin. It doesn't mean you're fully dead to sin yet. Sin may still creep up and pull on you. It still has some life. That's what Paul's talking about in the seventh chapter. This is a wrestling match. How in the world can anybody out-wrestle this old man that's inside? And he said, through Jesus Christ. That's how you do it. You make sure you stay in relationship with the Lord. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, of course we're not going to live any longer therein. Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? What death? You know, you're baptized into Jesus Christ after your conversion experience, aren't you? So that can't be talking about His death as far as His death on the cross because your connection through His death on the cross occurred as part of your conversion experience, not as part of baptism. That's his death to sin, which is the subject of this sixth chapter. Not being a slave to sin, being dead to sin, and not continuing in sin. Jesus was dead to sin. And when we're baptized into his death, we're baptized into the very source of power that will allow us to remain dead to sin. When God fills you with the Holy Ghost, he's putting power in your life. Something to enliven you, to give you something new and empowered within to war against the old man, to war against your old ways. That's how you can begin to become dead to sin. Because something alive and new, the new man, it's called several times in Paul's writings, is within and he's taking up conflict, he's going to battle with the old man. The old man's eventually going to have to die for you to truly and fully be dead to sin. So he goes on to say, In the end of that fourth verse, we should walk in newness of life. That's part of what we should be doing. When we're asking the Lord to change us, we're asking Him to change us so we don't walk like we used to walk. We don't act like we used to act. We're walking in a new way. We're walking in a righteous path. And you can go right on down there. I'm just going to give you a few of these verses in here. Knowing that our old man in the sixth verse is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe also that we shall live with him. That's a change. Going from being alive to sin. If you're still alive to sin, if you're still having sin pull on you, there's still death working in you. That's why Paul in the next chapter said, there's death in my members. There's working in my members. But that death can be overcome. Because the power of the Holy Ghost is enough to overcome death. The power of the work of God in your life is enough to change you from the creature that you are and turn you into something different than you were. Praise His holy name. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel isn't just about the past. It's about the present. And it's about the future. Full salvation is not just about the past. It's about the present. And it's about the future. And understanding that's one of the most powerful things in the world because when you sing a song like we were singing this morning, Lord, change me, 
you'll really understand what that's talking about. I want the full process done. I want to be completed. Twice in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus was made perfect by the things that He suffered. Now, I think you and I both know Jesus was perfect in terms of being blameless, never having done any sin before He suffered anything. He was born in a perfect state. He was blameless, wasn't He? He was without sin. But He still went through a process that completed the work in Him that had to be done just like you and I have to do. God in heaven changes. Changes from the creature that we were. And you can go on through that sixth chapter and just one statement after another. In fact, if you look at my Bible, you won't be able to see it from back there, but if you look at my Bible on that page, almost that whole sixth chapter is underlined in orange. The process, the process, the process of what God's doing in our life. It gives you some hope because if you think it's already been done and then you actually are honest enough to examine yourself once in a while, you might wonder what in the world is the problem. If everything's already been completed and there's nothing left to do, and then you truly look at yourself in the mirror and you realize, I've still got some serious blemishes that need to be removed, you know. I still need some surgery to get rid of some of the issues I've got. You won't understand it. But there's a process. Things happen in a process. And God's working on us to change us. So thank you, Lord, for changing us from the creature that we were. And thank you, Lord, for still continuing to change us, which as you'll see in the rest of that chapter is what he's talking about till you get right on into the 8th chapter when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation. This is a powerful statement, but it's a statement you better rightly understand. To them that are in Christ Jesus. This is another verse that very often people cut off right in the middle of the verse and don't read any more of it. You could cut it off if you understood the first half correctly. You understood what it means to be in Christ Jesus, you wouldn't need to quote the rest. But thank the Lord the Spirit inspired the rest to be written because some people don't know what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And the last part of the verse tells you what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Meaning you're not in Christ if you're not walking after the Spirit. If you're still walking in a fleshly way, you're not really in Christ. you got to walk after the Spirit. And it goes on to even get more specific in the verses that follow that when it says that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now in the fourth verse, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. If you're still minding the things of the flesh, if those are still the things that are pulling you, then you're not walking in the Spirit. You might be walking in the Spirit some of the time. That doesn't mean you're never walking in the Spirit. That's the problem with the roller coaster ride that we have until we get to a place where we're only climbing. There's a place where you're going to get to in your spiritual walk if you keep going on with God, where you're going to start scaling Mount Zion and you're going to reach a place where there's no coming down, saints. At least you have any sense there's no coming down. And all you're doing is climbing. No more roller coaster rides. No more climbing and dropping and climbing and dropping and going back down. You know, when someone climbs a really tall mountain where the oxygen is very thin at the top, like Mount Everest, you have to acclimate your lungs to there being less oxygen. And you don't do it just by training for that. You have to actually go partway up the mountain, stay up there for a little while until you get used to that level. You go back down and kind of recharge. Then you go a little bit higher up the mountain, stay there for a little while, get used to that level, come back down a little bit. You wouldn't think that would work, but that's the only way. Your lungs can slowly get acclimated to how thin the oxygen is going to be, how hard it's going to be to breathe when you get up to the very top of a mountain like that where the death zone is at, where people are most likely to die, and up towards the peak. In a way, that's how the Lord works. It's progressive like that, but He doesn't want you to go back down the mountain. 
What's different about your progressive relationship with the Lord is we go up a little ways up the mountain and then we make our camp there and base camp just changed. When you're climbing Everest, base camp is down at the bottom and you make temporary camps and you can go back to base camp if you need to. We're not going back to base camp. We're changing our base camp. When we get to a little higher place in the Lord, that's our new base camp. We're not to go back down below that again. We stay there until you are so certain you can hold your own at that level that you're strong enough to keep climbing. You're not in your own strength, but through what God is doing in you, you realize, I think I've got enough strength to go a little higher in my relationship with the Lord. I can climb a little higher. The air's going to get thinner. It's going to get harder for your old man to breathe up there on the heights of Mount Zion. But I'm going to tell you what also isn't there. Anybody ever heard of the snake line on a mountain? You know, one of the things, if you're out hiking, that is always a danger is snakes. A lot of times, they come right under your feet. You don't realize that something is there that has the potential to kill you, and it's outside your eye level sometimes. We were hiking here in southern Ohio a while back, and I'm glad I didn't step on this individual because he looked like he'd do some damage. He was probably about eight feet long. Maybe part of him as big around as my forearm. Snake just appeared right across my path. I told one of my daughters, I said, I think I'm kicking him off the cliff. We were right by the edge of a cliff. I said, I don't know how long it's going to take before he gets out of the path, and I don't want him to bite you guys, so I think I'm going to just give him a little shove off the cliff. He can take a dive, you know. You know what I found a little bit later? We were climbing. We were following the path. You know what would have happened if I'd kicked him off the cliff? He'd been right in my face a little bit later because that path went down and down, and I would have been right where I would have kicked him. He would have been hanging down right in my face probably or right in the path again. So I left him alone. I had left him at peace. But there is a place you can get in terms of a high place, a place you can get in terms of above sea level, where the air is too thin for a snake. They don't live there. You know, that's what we're striving for. We're striving to get past the snake line, to get high enough up on this mountain that is Mount Zion that we're past the snake line. You don't run to snakes anymore. You've moved past the snake line. So these statements that Paul made in this chapter, you can read right on through there. He goes on to say in those verses I was just reading, they that are after the Spirit, they mind the things of the Spirit. You can tell if somebody's after the Spirit because it's spiritual things that are what they're interested in. They're not interested in carnal things. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Isn't that interesting? It gives you both. You think life would be enough. It's life, but it also will give you peace. Because as long as you continue to be carnally minded, you're going to be in a state of war with God somewhere within, and you'll never be at peace. Peace is what we're seeking, whether you realize it or not. If you really could recognize, and I think some of us have done this, but if you really could recognize the turmoil going on inside of you, the value of ceasing from that conflict with God is worth more than anything. The feeling of peace, that peace that passes understanding. It passes understanding because we've never experienced it before. You felt it when you were forgiven of your past sins. For a period of time, the consciousness of you being in a state where you weren't guilty of anything, like a baby, is pretty peaceful. Where you know God doesn't have anything He's holding me accountable for. He's forgiven me of my past sins. Then when other events occur in your life and you're filled with the Holy Ghost and that washing of that Spirit that just rushes through you and just seems to clean out the whole mechanism... And after you're filled with the Holy Ghost, I heard Brother Lee say this, I don't know how many times through the years, exactly what I felt, Brother Stevens. You feel as clean as you've ever been. You should. It's another one of God's gifts that's intended to keep you clean, to wash you. 
His words the same way. There's times you can sit under the preaching of the Word of God. If your heart is open to the preaching of the Word of God, if your mind is open to the preaching of the Word of God, if your ears are open to the preaching of the Word of God, and if by extension of all that, your soul is open to the preaching of the Word of God, and you can walk away feeling cleansed by the Word of God because you're saying, Lord, I believe it and I'm going to do it. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Thank you, Lord, for your direction. It's what a good father does. He gives us direction. He gives us provision. He gives us protection. He goes on down the 13th verse of Romans 8. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Again, this point, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You want to know what it is to be a child of God? Well, you can be born a child of God by the Holy Ghost, but then you've got to let the Holy Ghost lead you for you to stay in that kind of a state where God would look at you and say, there's my child. You've got to be led by the Spirit of God. And that leads right into these verses that were on my mind as we were singing this when talking about the creation groaning and travailing. It goes on to talk about if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Isn't that a precious promise? You know, if you are an heir of God, you're a joint heir of Christ. What does that tell you? It tells you Jesus is an heir of God, isn't he? Read Hebrews 1. Jesus is an heir of God, and if you're an heir of God, you're a joint heir with Jesus. Jesus has an inheritance coming to him. And if God has written you into his will, the good thing about God's will is most wills end with the death of the testator. There's Hebrews talking about Jesus. It says most testaments, covenants, thinking of it like a last will and testament, aren't empowered until the individual whose testament it is, whose will it is, dies. The New Testament began to be brought to power by his death, but it's not his death that brought the New Testament to power. It was his resurrection. So it's the opposite of what happens in the natural realm, where somebody might be waiting, God forbid if you had this spirit, waiting for somebody to die so you can get their inheritance, you know. You're waiting for them to die so you can receive their inheritance. I hope you're not waiting for anybody to die, saints, except for yourself. The only person you need to be waiting to die is you. Lord, change me from the creature that I am. I want to die, Lord. And I don't just mean as a martyr if that were necessary. I hope we're willing to do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I want to die to self. I want to die to the things that are not like you. And then if we're children and then heirs of God, we're joint heirs with Christ. Here's one of those qualifiers. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified also together. Also glorified together. So it's the process. There's the suffering part of the process that gets you to that place. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Whatever the present sufferings are, whether it's something evil that is going on or whether it's the processes of God that feel evil to you because you don't appreciate them, I reckon, you better reckon it too. That's not a word we use too often in our modern English, but I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever this present condition is that Brother John was referring to, which is why I'm on this thought, thinking about what Brother John was saying, whatever the present conditions of this situation we're in, good or bad, they're not worthy to be compared with what's coming and what's going to be accomplished by them. For the earnest expectation of the creature, whether they know it or not, this creation, much of it is in rebellion against God right now, and they don't recognize their need for the Lord. But I promise you, nobody really wants to die. Nobody really wants to suffer. Nobody likes the conditions of the curse. They may not believe it's a curse. They may think it's just the results of the Big Bang, you know, and all these accidental things have happened that have made our lives this hellish condition that perhaps they can sometimes be in this present world. It's just all a result of chance and circumstance. I wish chance and circumstance would have done a better job. 
Why wouldn't chance and circumstance create this beautiful, wonderful package instead of a wrecked package? It's because it wasn't chance and circumstance that created the problem. It was the choice of man that created the conditions that we're living in right now. And it'll be the choice of man that'll get you out of those conditions because you're going to have to choose to serve the Lord. You're going to have to choose to go on with God. You're going to have to choose to be changed. Not just because you can change yourself, because most things we need done in us, we cannot do by ourselves. Some things we can, some things willpower, just self-discipline. But most of the things that are the deep things in us, we're going to have to have someone helping us. So when we sing a song like we were singing in the beginning, change me, O Lord, from the creature that I am, that's asking God, I need your help, Lord. I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be more than this. I want to be somebody you would take pleasure in. Want to be somebody that one day you'd say, well done, thou good and thou faithful servant. I want to hear you say, well done. I want to hear you say with pride. And God doesn't have the wrong kind of pride, so it wouldn't matter. Say with pride, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's my child. I'm proud to lift them up as an example and say, look at this. You think he's proud of his son Jesus? You better believe he is. And anybody that is striving to be like Jesus gives God a shot of pride in the best possible sense of the meaning of that word. That's what I'm looking for. Someone willing to be like Jesus. That's why I sent my son. Number one, to free them from their past so they no longer be slaves of the past. But number two, to give them an example so then from that point forward, once I give them the power of the Holy Ghost, they can live in a way that is like the example I gave them. To be like Jesus. There's a song, to be like Jesus. On earth I long to be like Him. All through life's journey, from earth to glory, I only ask to be like Him. That's what I'm asking right now. Thank you, Lord, that when I asked for your forgiveness for my past sins, you responded and you washed me from my past sins. Now, Lord, I'm asking, since I know the power you have and the purpose you have, will you let me be like your son, Jesus? Will you do in me what is necessary that I can be like Jesus? I don't mean to equal him in some positional sense. We're never going to have that. The bride of Christ is going to sit beside her bridegroom, but she's not going to have the same degree of authority he has other than in a shared sense. He'll share his authority with her. She couldn't override his authority. But we can be like Jesus. We can have the qualities Jesus has. And the creation is looking for somebody like that. And in this passage, which you'll see in a couple of verses, when it talks about this longing for the sons of God, the sons of God there are fully developed, fully mature children of God. Somebody that is just like Jesus. The reason it's not just somebody that has faith and is maybe a child in some sense or has been filled with the Holy Spirit and is a born-again child of God is because somebody like that is not the evidence yet of what this passage is talking about. This is talking about the fact that we're all still under the curse. And something is going to break the curse. You might right now, I hope you all are, be a born-again child of God. If you properly understand what it means to be born again, it's a couple things involved in being born again. It's not just one thing, it's a couple things to get to the place where you can truly be called born again. But if you're a born-again child of God, somebody born of the Spirit, which you couldn't be born of the Spirit unless you'd already had a conversion experience, could you? So if you're a born-again child of God, that doesn't make you a fully developed child of God. There have been a lot of born-again children of God that unfortunately haven't set the best example for this world. But once the sons of God come to full maturity, sons there could refer to male or female, to children of God. The creature itself shall be delivered in the 21st verse in the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You know when you've come to that glorious liberty of the children of God, the bondage of corruption has no hold on you anymore. 
I know we'd all like to be free of the bondage of corruption, wouldn't we? Well, we're going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption if you continue in your relationship with the Lord. One of these days, praise the holy God of heaven, we're going to see the things that I'm not going to read on through the rest of this. We're going to see the things that are encapsulated in these chapters where God is changing the creation. He starts changing the creation by changing his children. He brings children to birth. People that were children of the devil, he now makes his children. Then once he makes us his children, he starts taking us through a learning process, a development process so that we can be changed from the creature that we once were into something greater than we ever would have dreamed. That's what Paul meant when he wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, I has not seen, neither has ear heard. Nobody has ever even imagined this could be possible. That should tell you the scale of what God's getting ready to do. The things that God has in store for them that love him. You got to love him. You got to love him. I've talked about this quite a bit the last year, but since I was talking the 8th chapter of Romans, I'll touch on it just for a second. That 8th chapter of Romans, that 28th verse, is the core point of that whole chapter. You've got to love God and be called according to His purpose. If you want everything to work together for good, don't we all want everything to work together for good? Anybody really want it to work together for bad? Saying, you know what, I'm just tired of good things happening in my life, and I think I'd like to... You know, that's pretty much what Adam and Eve did. I'm just kind of tired of everything being nice. This garden's just so beautiful and things are so nice here and I imagine it was the most beautiful place that has ever existed. Whatever we've ever seen at the most glorious thing we've ever seen out in nature somewhere has to be a pale shadow what the Garden of Eden was. And they traded that. Like Esau trading his birthright for a bowl of pottage, they traded away eternal life. They traded away the most beautiful environment you could have. They apparently devalued it. And didn't realize just how incredible what they had was. That's why I never want us to devalue what we've got right now. We don't have everything yet. There are still things we haven't inherited yet. There's still things that God has yet to give His church. That's why we believe so strongly in the restoration of the church before Christ returns. There's things God still is going to do in His church and for His church and through His church. But saints, what we've got right now is glorious. This is the garden of the Lord right now if you understand it spiritually. This is where the fruit of the Spirit is being developed right now. This is the place where He walks right now. You know, He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, He walks through here once in a while. I felt Him walking through here today, spiritually speaking. Did you feel Him walking in here amongst us? Praise His holy name, saints. This is the garden of the Lord in our day. We want to work to make it a more beautiful garden. We want to work to make it a more productive garden. Want to get all the fruit produced and at their fullness and really see things at its greatest beauty, you know. Sometimes you see something and it's partially done. I've seen some plants that I looked at and I thought, that is absolutely beautiful. You go over to Kingwood or one of these places where they have a lot of different flowers and things. Little did I know what it would look like when it came to full bloom a few weeks or months later and then it just stopped my heart almost looking at it. This is a garden, saints, and there's some beautiful plants. Beautiful plants here. The people of God. The products of the things that God adds here, His Word and His Spirit and other things. We ought to be excited that God has led us into the garden. He led us in the gate, the door that is Jesus, right into this sheepfold that is His garden in this day. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And now let my heart be a garden where you can make the changes, the cultivating changes you need to make. Take some weeds out, Lord. There's weeds in my life and there's weeds in yours. 
Let's hope they're not weeds that just keep coming back, you know. Some weeds that keep coming back. You get in there and you spray it with something. Brother Kevin has to do this multiple times a year in the areas that haven't got concreted yet, where eventually we want to concrete where it's gravel. No matter how heavy you put weed block under there or tarp or whatever you want to put, how much heavy gravel you put, those weeds are going to work their way up. And eventually you start seeing those nasty little green guys coming up all over in that gravel. And I can't stand that. I like clean, nice looking things. I look over there and Kevin's spraying away. He knows, you know, Kevin loves me and he loves this church. He knows how much it drives me crazy to see weeds. So he is spraying away over there and slowly they die. But you know, those weeds come right back. God help us. Don't let the weeds come back in our lives. Change us, Lord. Apply something so deep to the soil of our souls that whatever that root system of that weed is that was deep down in our heart is totally uprooted and never comes back. Praise His holy name. So, all right, why don't we go ahead and receive our offering here. Say how glad I am. And glad is not a big enough word, Brother Jerome and you precious saints. How honored I am to have these precious saints here today. We're attending here in Green and have attended church in Texas. And if I understand it correctly, Brother Jerome, I've heard your testimony secondhand, and I pray to hear it firsthand one of these times. Anytime you feel to give it, the testimony of your precious families. Many of you are from Rwanda. Their families endured terrible persecution in Rwanda. I think we've got at least one precious sister from Kenya, though, as well, don't we? Bless your heart. We've got a lot of friends in Kenya. Been talking to a number of ministers there for many years now. Isn't it a blessing to us to have some precious saints of God that have come all the way from that part of the world and through difficulty and distress to be here in the United States? Aren't we glad they're here with us today? Thank you, Lord, and thank you all for being with us. It is our honor to have you here and the spirit that you can feel from these precious saints of God. So thank you for being with us this afternoon. Bless your hearts.